So glad to be with you guys this morning as we kick off our brand new series through the book of Exodus. Uh, if you're somewhat familiar with Exodus, even if you aren't quite sure what's all in Scripture, you've at least undoubtedly heard stories uh, from the book of Exodus. Uh, and so uh, really looking forward to go through this. We'll be going through the whole book. Uh, there's a lot in there, so it'll take us about two or three years. <laughs> you guys knew that was a joke right away. I was like hoping you'd be like, what? No, I'm just kidding. That's not going to take that long. Maybe like 18 months. Just kidding, not that long either. But anyway, we're look, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, a big reason why is I think sometimes when we read Scripture and we don't understand maybe the context in which it was written and all that was going on, particularly uh, with a book like Exodus, where there's a lot of stories that, that look awesome and sound awesome, but we can miss what is really going on if we don't understand the larger context in which they were written and what is going around in and around those stories. Let me maybe give you a more modern example. Uh, in December 2015, uh, the heavily anticipated film Star Wars The Force Awaken came out. Now, some Star Wars fans loved it. Some Star Wars fans did not like that they were continuing to do this. Uh, but if you were really geeked out about the Star Wars, uh, uh, the, the trilogies and, and the movies, you were really excited about it uh, in a way that someone who was maybe watching a first Star Wars movie for the first time wasn't, right? And what makes Star Wars uh, special and also unique is that in 2015, uh, when The Force Awakens came out, that was actually part seven of the film series. Uh, part one uh, came out in 1999, and part four, which was the original, came out in 1977, right? And so there's a, a lot of things happening that can be confusing uh, if you're watching the movie for the first time that someone who's really geeked out about these things uh, was excited. And so if you were there, maybe you're trying to explain the movie to a friend who didn't know what was going on and you're talking about like Luke Skywalker and his dad was Darth Vader and he was good and he's bad and there's these mitochlorians and there's all these things like it was it's really confusing right like you don't know what's going on but if you did and if you were a big fan you know when the, when the movie starts and you see Han Solo and, and Chewie going onto the ship and you're like Han Solo this is amazing and Chewie's like and he's like yes this is so awesome right someone who has never seen the film would be like what is going on, right? I have no idea what is going on. And so uh, my hope as we go through the book of Exodus is that we would be able to maybe see some of these stories and these things in a new light, that if some of our questions would be answered about why certain things happened the way that they did, uh, when we go through the story, we get to see these things in the bigger picture in which they were written. And so this morning, we're kicking off Exodus chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to them. Maybe you've got an app on your phone. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to read along with us, you can uh, open up. There's a black Bible in the seat back in front of you. We're on page 47 in there. You can read along with us. Now, uh, some background behind Exodus. Uh, Exodus is the second book in what's called the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. It's the first five books of the Bible that are meant to be read as one large story together, which is from creation to the beginning of the nation of Israel, from which the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come. Uh, and so what we see happening here is uh, this we or it's part today in particular, uh, this will probably feel more like a story than a sermon, because uh, I want us to kind of see the background behind what is happening in Exodus so that we can better understand all that is going on. And so in Exodus chapter one, verse one in Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was written in, uh, the word that uh, Exodus chapter one, verse one actually starts with the word and. And it does that because it's trying to connect what happened in Genesis. So Genesis chapter 50, the end of Genesis, Joseph, who we'll explain in a second, uh, is 110 years old and he dies. And then this is how it starts. Uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. It would say, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob 
Each came with his family. So again, it's a continuation of the story in Genesis. Uh, Israel and Jacob in verse 1 are the same person. It is uh, the same person. And again, the, the Israelites who are reading this after the uh, fact are uh, uh, reading these, these stories and being reminded of God's faithfulness and being reminded of their humble beginnings. Uh, and so Jacob's name was changed to Israel by God uh, to uh, reaffirm the promise that was given to his father Abraham that a great nation would come through Abraham and his family, again, of which the Savior of the world would come, right? And so he reignites the promise of Abraham, which we'll get to in a second, uh, but they're moving to Egypt, and then it says this in verse 2. Here are the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, right? These are the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, in that list, there's 11, and then there's plus Joseph, who's 12, who was already in Egypt at the time that the rest of the family uh, moved down. Now, what's interesting is a lot of times we get into genealogies of the Bible, and if you're like me, maybe you're, if you're reading through like a Bible in a year plan or something like that, and you get to like numbers, and you see all these genealogies, normally it's like awesome. Like, I can just kind of skim it because I don't know what it means, and there's just a bunch of names, right? Uh, what we actually see happening all throughout Scripture is that anytime we see a list of names, Names or a genealogy, they're not, just they're, they're not just there telling us the names of people who kind of advanced the bloodline of various families. Uh, they're always also theological. And so Israel was, ended up being, uh, uh, being divided up into 12 tribes, of which the son of Israel, all these 11 plus Joseph, uh, Joseph, they were named after. So again, it's reminding the Israelites of their beginning. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 5, the total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph, as we mentioned, was already in Egypt. Uh, and so what's happening here, 70, is significant because, again, it's meant to remind Israel of their humble beginnings. As we're going to see, they're only 70 right now, but they are going to be turning into a massive nation. And so, again, this is a reminder of God's faithfulness, that he started with one with Abraham, then they became 70 of all of the people, uh, part of Jacob's family at the time, and then they're going to turn into a great nation. And then verse 6, it says this, Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. So again, Genesis ends with Joseph dying at 110 years old, likely the last of his brothers to die, to pass away. Uh, but they're being faithful and they're multiplying, which is continuing the mandate that God had for the original human beings when he created them uh, to, to create and to subdue and to, this idea of, of, of this ongoing care of creation, that creation wasn't just a one-time event. Uh, God creates everything, the animals and everything that is in it. The humans arrive on the scene. He says, continue to create. Uh, continue to, uh, to, to uh, subdue and to continue to uh, create things in this world. It's an ongoing act. And so we're seeing here that God is fulfilling his promises, even to Adam and Eve right here. But however, he's going to fulfill his promises to send a Messiah in a way that nobody would have really guessed and nobody would have wanted. We're going to see, as we go through the story of Exodus, people who were oppressed, uh, people who were beaten, people who lived very difficult lives, that God is going to be faithful, but not in the way that they 
would have thought. And so what I want to do is I want to, as quickly as I can, I want to briefly uh, walk through the Genesis story so that we can understand what is happening as we get into uh, Exodus. Now, what happens is, again, God creates everything, and it is good, and it is wonderful. Uh, the human, Adam and Eve, uh, come onto this scene. He places them into the garden uh, where everything is good, uh, and everything is uh, going well for them uh, until sin and death enter the world. Now, before that happens, it says in Genesis that they were naked, and unashamed, that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And it is not just this idea uh, that of, of not wearing clothes. What it's talking about there is that they didn't have anything to hide. They, did, they were not embarrassed by anything. They didn't have to run from anything. They had a perfect communion with God, and life was good. They were naked and unashamed. It's kind of like, you can think of it this way, in terms of not having anything to hide and not being ashamed. If you ever change a baby's diaper, right? When you go to change a baby's diaper, they're not just like, they're not like, oh, no, don't, don't look. Don't look. They're like, what, what do they do? They're like, okay, whatever. Like, let's just, like, they're naked and unashamed. Like, they are, they are not scared about what is going on, right? And this is how it was when God's creation was good before sin entered the world. You're welcome for that illustration, right? So, th so things are going well. And then in Genesis chapter 1, you can, you can follow along with this, or you can just read it on the screen, the, the few verses that we'll look at. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, as they are naked and unashamed, as things are going well, it says this, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Right? So this idea, of, this idea of creation is this ongoing act. Now, the problem is, uh, eventually, Adam and Eve disobey God. Sin enters the world. They are uh, excommunicated, if you will, from the garden. They can no longer partake of the tree of life, however that exactly went down. And so that they could no longer live forever, that things were not going to be the way that they wanted them to be. And you would think after that moment that there would be a time that God was angry, that God would kind of, uh, I don't know, want to put them in their place. But what happens? In Genesis chapter 3, very quickly after Adam and Eve sinned for the first time uh, through the through the devil and the person or in the I don't know personification or whatever you want to call it uh, of a serpent who tricks them into disobeying God and going their own way. Here's what God says to the serpent and to Adam and Eve. He says, "I will put hostility between you and the woman, so the serpent, the evil one, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel." What we see is from the very beginning. As soon as sin and death and pain and agony enter into the world, God has a plan to, of redemption through the seed of this man and this woman that one day the Messiah would come in the form of a man to give us grace, redemption, and mercy in a way that we could never earn it on our own. That God, God graciously loves us and give us grace through this person and work of this Messiah to come. And so the Exodus is the beginning of the story of the nation by which God is going to send his Redeemer to the world, which is significant for us to understand that Jesus' coming was not planned B. Jesus' coming was not life was really bad, things were not going how they wanted, and God didn't want to know, God didn't, wasn't sure what to do, or maybe God f started to feel bad, so he said, I'm going to send a redeemer. From the very beginning, we see that God had a plan of redemption. Jesus wasn't plan B. He wasn't thought of later on. That God always said, I'm going to send a Messiah to do for all of us 
what we could never do for ourselves. And, ex- and the Exodus is kind of the beginning of that story. And so if you fast forward a little bit uh, to Genesis chapter 12, uh, we see God calling Abram, uh, to, to calling him out after a lot of wickedness and evil had come onto the earth. Again, God does not turn his back on us. Eventually, he calls on the family of Abram, and it says, I'm going to make a nation out of you from which the Messiah would come. This is what it says in verses 12, 1 through 3, or chapter 12, 1 through 3 of Genesis. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. Which is, by the way, what we see happening in Exodus. As the nation of Israel begins to grow and expand, those that oppress, those that come against, those that try to curse the nation of Israel, uh, do see repercussions. Now, as a side note, you might be wondering, well, that seems unfair. Like, why does a certain uh, peop- group of people, why are they chosen? Why are they the ones that, that need to be protected? Uh, what we need to understand is that an attack on the Israelites, at the end of the day, is actually an attack on God's plan for redemption. That it is actually for the good of the entire world that the nation of Israel is preserved and grows so that the Messiah can come. And that's the point of all of this, right? The second part of, cha- of verse 3, it says this. It says, in all the peoples on earth, will be blessed through you, right? right. It's what's happening here is he's talking about the Messiah to come, will bless the entire world, that all peoples from every nation, tongue, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status can receive the grace and mercy of God uh, through this, the Messiah that is going to come to the nation of Israel, which is going to start with Abraham. Now, here's what's interesting. At this point in Abram's life, he is very old. His wife is very old. They have no children together, and it would certainly take a miracle uh, for them to become pregnant, right? And so when God says this, this might sound great, but the question is, how in the world is this actually going to happen? So if you fast forward a few chapters to Genesis chapter 15, uh, Abram is faithful with some things, and then it says this in verse 1, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 15. It says, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliza of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And so when it comes to the end of Abraham's life, or Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham, he eventually dies with one son and a promise. And out of this one son, Jacob and or Israel, as we saw in Exodus chapter 1, this great nation would come. And so he dies with a promise that this is somehow going to come to be and only one son. And so in Exodus chapter 1, we see this one son has now turned into 70 
descendants. There's 70 people. And so slowly, the story of Exodus, this idea of the Messiah, the nation to come, is slowly beginning to gain traction. In fact, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, when it talks about them being numerous, uh, the Hebrew is actually a little bit more explicit. I'll just read a somewhat more uh, literal translation, if you will, of, of, of Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. It actually says this. So it could be read this way. The Israelites became fruitful and swarmed. They increased in number and became exceedingly strong, right? And this is idea. They go from one to 70 and then to a massive nation. I'll fast forward really quick. Here's what it says in Exodus chapter 12 of verse 37. As they're leaving Egypt, here's how numerous that they have come. It says, the Israelites tra traveled from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 able-bodied men on foot besides their families, now, we're going to see how they became so big of a nation, and you think as we fast forward, this is awesome. It's going to come through a lot of pain and a lot of difficulties in ways that people would not have wanted it to come about, but it's going to be really big. And so, again, the beginning of Exodus and the story of Exodus is God's promises, God's faithfulness of beginning to gain traction, and yet no one, again, would wanted them to have to play out the way that it did. As we're going to see beginning next week, there's going to be oppression, there's going to be death, uh, there's going to be slavery, there's going to be hardship, that God is faithful, but not in the way that we would have wanted. And so one of the things that we see as we read through the books of Exodus is this, that pain does not equal abandonment. Pain in your life, pain in my life, does not equal abandonment from God. And this is why reading through books like Exodus is helpful, because we, we miss what is going on if we don't see Scripture in its context. So, uh, for example, uh, many times in our lives, when, when difficulties come our way, or when hardships come our way, one of the things, the first things we question is, God, why would you allow this to happen? Or, God, why did you do this? And what happens is we don't understand Scripture in its context, that the, the people of God always suffer, that suffering does not mean God doesn't care for you. Suffering does not mean that God isn't there for you. That when we see, again, Scripture in its context, we actually understand that our story is not when bad things happen to you, God is angry. When bad things happen with you, God has abandoned you. That sometimes God's promises come through our pain. And so it's an encouragement to us today. If you're walking through something difficult, if you're struggling, this does not mean that we can't question it. It's human to question. It does not mean that we can't ask God why. But we have to understand, and we see this as we read books like Exodus, that pain does not mean that he is displeased with you. It does not mean that he has left you. That sometimes God's promises, even though they are good for us, require us to walk through difficult things for us to fully realize all that God has for us and all that he might want us to do. And so again, we see this when we see the context of God makes an amazing promise and it's going to come through a lot of difficulty. Let me give you maybe uh, two examples of this, of, of why it's important to see things in their context and not just take like a story or a verse because it can lead us to think things that scripture is saying that it's not, that it's not actually saying. So maybe an easy example of this is in Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 13, it'll be on the screen. It says this, and it sounds awesome. On, uh, just like the verse itself, it sounds awesome. Uh, it says, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. 
Like, awesome. like faith in Jesus, love God, I'll do whatever I want, I can make the game winning shot, I'll get the girl, I'll get the house, I'll, I'll, I'll get the career that I want. As long as I'm faithful, then I'll get what I want. And then what happens? Uh, we are faithful, or we try to be, and we don't get what we want, and we think God has abandoned us, and we think that, that God is either evil or that he doesn't care about us. Now, What's happening in Philippians chapter 4? What's happening in Philippians chapter 4 is Paul, the Apostle Paul who writes this letter, is talking about how he's been shipwrecked, how he's been beaten, how he's been stoned to the point of death, how he's been jailed, that sometimes in his life he's had a lot, and a lot of times in his life, particularly once he started following Jesus, he has not had very much. And so he talks about having contentment and peace and joy, even in hardships. It's not that he enjoys hardships. It's not that he's seeking them. It's not that they necessarily make him happy, but no matter what, what is coming his way, these things that he's experienced, he can experience joy and contentment and peace in the midst of them. That's what it is saying in chapter 4 of Philippians. But when you don't read the context and you say, well, uh, I see, I can do, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. The question is, what are those things? Those things Paul is talking about is peace and joy in the midst of hardship. And if we don't understand that, then we miss what Scripture is actually telling us. I'll give you one more, maybe lesser-known example, but one I actually think is really awesome. On Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, it'll be on the screen. Habakkuk was a prophet uh, in the Old Testament. It says this, Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. And that sounds awesome, right? It's like, this is a great promise. I love it. In fact, you can buy um, coffee mugs with Habakkuk 1.5 on them. Go online after this. You can order one. The problem is Habakkuk chapter 1 is God's judgment on Israel saying that they are going to be subjected to captivity and they are going to experience slavery and destruction. Mm. Right? The thing that he's talking about, being utterly astounded, is things that they do not want to have happen, right? It is not good. Not good at all, which is why it's again, it's helpful for us to understand maybe some of these well-known stories. It's helpful for us to understand what, the, what Scripture is actually saying, what is actually going on. And I say that all that to say what we're going to see throughout the book of Exodus is this clear main point, and that is that Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus, Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. This is what Scripture as a whole is doing. It is pointing us to Jesus, and it is talking about Jesus. And so when we, we go through Exodus, and you might think, well, it's the Old Testament. It's not relevant to me. It is extremely relevant to us because it shows us our heritage. It shows us uh, what God has done, and it shows us the amazing grace and mercy of God and all of the ways that he has moved so that Jesus can do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Again, we miss all that God is actually doing when we pull certain passages away and just read a story, which they're great, but we can miss that what God is actually doing them when we read, read them in isolation. Uh, this is why, for example, genealogies matter. Again, it's one of those things that we often uh, uh, kind of quickly glance over because we're like, well, I don't know who these people are. It's not relevant to me. Uh, you, you even see uh, genealogies in the New Testament. And so two of the gospel accounts start with the genealogies of Jesus. And again, what is happening there is as we read these accounts, we're supposed to think about these people in the Old Testament and how God was faithful, and how God was good, right? And so it's, it's kind of ironic that when we get to the, like the genealogies of Scripture, we want to you know, kind of like skim over them, but yet we love things like Ancestry.com, right? Why? Because we want to know who we are, right? We want to know where we have come from, and this is what Scripture does. This is what these genealogies do, is it's pointing us back to who God is 
and what he has done. In fact, Peter ends, a biblical scholar, uh, talking about Exodus and talking about genealogies and talking about why it's important for us to understand our heritage. He puts it this way. It'll be on the screen. He says, the proper starting point for Christians today is to understand their own continuity with the past. The question of who we are can only be answered in terms of who God is, uh, specifically in terms of what he has done in Christ and of our relationship to Christ. The Christian connects with the past by virtue of his or her, her union with Christ in whom the past itself is fulfilled, right? All of this is a unified story pointing to Jesus of which Jesus fulfills everything that is going on. And again, if you continue this idea of, of salvation and creation and how this creation is an ongoing uh, thing that God is doing, it's not just a one-time event, we actually see uh, creation and salvation coming together in the form of Jesus. And the New Testament highlights this often. I'll just read one verse, uh, a well-known verse that kind of puts these two together. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 17, it says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. And so what we see happening here is that the Savior is also the creator, and he is also our recreator. That the Savior is continuing his work through us, and as we trust and follow him, and we see that all that God has done through Scripture, we have a better understanding of all the goodness and grace of God. We actually see in more fullness that Scripture is a unified story, continually pointing to the Messiah to come, and the Messiah that has come. And Exodus, as we will see as we journey through it, is going to be continually pointing to this Messiah for our own good. And so it's important for us to understand, especially when we talk about this unified story pointing to Jesus and all that Jesus has done for us, what we see happening here is this, uh, that the cross gives you and gives me what we cannot earn. When we talk about uh, Scripture being a unified story pointing to Jesus, ultimately it is pointing to this Messiah who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. The cross, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, does and gives you and I what we cannot earn. Right? The gospel is this, that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, and he does not need you. Right? In our culture today, we like to think that like we're awesome and, and we're special and we're unique. And yes, there's some truth to that. But at the end of the day, that God is magnificent and he's glorious and he's powerful and he doesn't need you. Right? Look no further than like those images of the universe and how massive it is. And like we're one tiny planet and we're people on the planet. Right? God is powerful and mighty. And just by, just by his words, he can create things that are unfathomable to our minds. He does not need us. And yet he invites us and he loves us and he gives us grace. And so in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, when he talks about the seed to come who will strike the heel of the serpent, this is what he's talking about. That God through Christ is making us, making a way for us to experience the grace and mercy of God that we cannot earn on our own. And not only that, we are, beginning, we are given forgiveness for all the things that we have done. That God is inviting us into his story because his, his grace and his mercy, right? The gospel, as we say sometimes here at New City Church is that because of Jesus, for those of us that believe and follow in Christ, even with all of our uh, blowing it, all of our falling short, because of Jesus, you have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. You have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress because Christ does it for us on our, on his, on our behalf for him, right? We have nothing to prove because he has proven all of it on the cross. And we have no one to impress because if God looks at us as children of the king, people he loves and he cares for, then we have no one else to impress because the king of the universe died for us and cared for us. 
And so as we move through the book of Exodus, one of the themes that we are going to see, and really the main idea from this morning as we get started on this journey, is this, that the story of God is greater than you and greater with you. The story of God and all that he is doing and has done and will do is so much greater than you, but it's also greater with you. Again, God does not need you. He did not create us because he was lonely. He did not create us because he needed some help. He's not up there in heaven saying, man, I really hope Johnny like repents of his sins and trusts in me because if he doesn't, then this thing that I was going to do, I'm not sure how it's going to work. He doesn't need you. He does not need you. He does not need me. And this is actually good news for us, right? It takes the pressures off. What this means, for example, is that you and I can't let God down because we were never holding him up to begin with, right? God is not up there being like, man, I really hope that you talk to this person. I really hope that you, that you follow me because if you don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. The story of God is so much greater than you. And this is why books like, this, the, uh, like Exodus can help us see this, that we are nothing and that God is everything. And yet... God invites us into what he is doing. The story of God is greater than you, but it is also greater with you, right? When men and women of God honor him, love others, care for one another, uh, go out of our way to, to serve and to help the marginalized, we are advancing the mission of God in ways that it might not be, would not be advanced if we didn't partake in what God is doing. Now, again, God can do whatever he wants to accomplish his mission, but he invites us into it. And to the degree that you and I love and honor and follow him and allow him through the power of his spirit to transform our life is a greater degree that we get to experience all that God is doing and play a part in what God has done and will do. And we see the book of Exodus, the beginning of God's covenant of Genesis chapter 3, as soon as sin entered the world, that I will make a great nation, and from that nation a Messiah will come. We are going to see the birth of this great nation. We are going to see people struggle. We are going to see people turn their back on God. We're going to see people try to be faithful and blow it. What we're going to see is ourselves in many ways. Right? This is actually an encouragement to us to know that we can fall short, that we can blow it, that we can turn our backs to God, and yet God is still there and he still cares for us. Right? Scripture is amazing and that if you were going to write a book uh, of a religion uh, to get people to join in onto your cause, uh, the Bible is terrible propaganda. It's awful. Right? You have prostitutes, you have murderers, you have adulterers, uh, you have people who go out of their way to, to reject God and to make life miserable for people, and these are the people that God uses. Right? It shows us, again, how great God's story is and how he invites all of us, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter how long you have run, run from God, or maybe you've been a follower of Jesus, but you have not taken your faith seriously, and you feel like, man, maybe you need to repent because God's angry with you. We understand that right here, right where we are, because of Christ, he always invites us. He always cares, and he always wants us to take a part of what he is doing, not because he needs us, but simply so we can experience the goodness of who he is. What we are going to see as we begin our series in Exodus, the birth of this great nation, that the story of God is greater than you and I could ever be. Uh, He doesn't need us, but he invites us. It's greater than us, but it is also greater with us when we participate in what God is doing. Let's pray.